Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. I'm David Weston and with me today is Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi Jan, are you well? Hi Dave, very well. Yes, um, I'm still excited about the dinner we had last week in Brussels after the Solar Power Euro Summit and uh, we found probably one of the best restaurants in Brussels, but I'm not going to say which one it is because otherwise all our subscribers when they come to Brussels will um, book up tables and we certainly don't want that. No, absolutely. Uh, a good secret. It was a lovely dinner and a very good recording, uh, which hopefully everyone heard last week uh, or in our last episode uh, at Solar Power Europe. Um yeah, great, great time that we had there. And uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing any feedback that you have from the listeners. Uh, sadly, Michaela can't make it today, uh, but hopefully she'll be back with us next time. When we start discussing energy efficiency, my mind immediately jumps to how our homes can use power better or more economically. But that ignores the whole commercial and industrial sectors and how businesses and corporations can also improve their efficiency of their activities. Our guest today is Toby Morgan from Climate Group, a non-profit organization that helps businesses in their quest to decarbonize. They're behind the RE100, EV100, EP100 initiatives, among many others, as well as Climate Week NYC. Climate Group have published a new report which looks at why there has never been a better time for businesses to invest in energy efficiency and improve their energy resilience. Toby, thank you so much for joining us today on the pod. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Um, maybe you could just briefly run down sort of the main conclusions of your new report uh, and what sort of the aims of the report were and yeah, what the outcomes have been so far. Yeah, great. So yeah, so I, I head up EP100 at Climate Group. So the work we do on energy efficiency and built environment. Um, we've got, we hold an annual reporting process for all of our members. So we, we know with these corporate um, campaigns and sign up campaigns, we want to hold these businesses to account to actually make sure they're they're doing what they say they're doing, and really to raise the profile of energy efficiency. We know that you know lots of companies are setting net zero goals or carbon neutrality goals, but actually they don't have that um, energy efficiency element as the first like the key cornerstone of of net zero, which we really want to promote. So you know it, it is technically possible to buy lots of um, PPAs or renewable certificates, buy a load of offsets, and then say, hey, presto, we're net zero. But actually, we want companies to reduce the amount of energy they're using in the first place. So we've called this um, report uh, the energy efficiency imperative. So we want to make sure, get the message out there that you know energy efficiency is the first port of call on um, corporate decarbonization strategies. Um, I think there's still lots of uh, a lack of knowledge really about the the massive part energy efficiency can play. So, the the International Energy Agency state that it can be up to 40% of the um, energy savings required to hit their sustainable 
um, development scenario. So it's not just this little bit of energy saving here and there and turning off lights and all that type of thing. It's actually a crucial part of the clean energy transition. And it also makes business sense. So, you know, with with the um, illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia, we've seen the energy crisis really kick off, especially in Europe. And companies are, are really aware now of how much energy they are wasting. And we can no longer rely on cheap fossil fuels to, to power our buildings, to power our operations, factories, facilities, whatever it is. So optimizing every single unit of energy you're using within your business is not just great for the climate, it's, it's great for business resilience as well. So that's what we're trying to um, raise with um, EP100 and with this annual reporting process. Thanks, Toby. Yeah, some really important points there. And you mentioned the IEA and the potential contribution efficiency can make 40% to decarbonization at global level. It's also important, uh, I think, for the listeners to understand that even historically, energy efficiency has made the, by far the largest contribution to decoupling economic growth, you know, GDP from uh, emissions, about 90%. That's according to the IPCC. Uh, but that's, that's very often overlooked. And for me, as someone who's worked on energy efficiency since 2007 now, so sort of about 15 years, it's always been a frustration that we spend, you know, more than 90% of the time talking about supply side solutions and only very little amount of time about reducing energy demand by just using energy more smartly. And um, you know, why do you think that is? You know, why do you think we give so little credit to energy efficiency in ongoing discussions about decarbonization, about energy, energy security, and focus almost exclusively on supply side solutions? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the key issues we know is that it's not the glamorous subject. You know, it doesn't uh, grab people's attention in the way that renewable energy or um, electric vehicles do, for example. It's also sort of invisible energy. So it, it's this less tangible thing. You can't see um, the energy that you're saving. But we know it's the, the quickest um, way to decarbonize is, you know, the reduction first approach. And it makes the transition to renewables a lot cheaper, a lot um, quicker as well. So what we try and do with EP100 is, is really raise the profile of it and, and not just say, you need to do more energy efficiency because that's not the most um, interesting story. We're, we're making the wider business case. So just by having this um, target for EP100, for example, it, it really helps to raise the profile within the organization. Now, we have a little strap line with EP100, taking energy efficiency from the boiler room to the boardroom. So we want to take it away from just being seen as this slightly dry technical subject, um, as it can be seen as, and really raising the profile internally. So if you've got that you know, C-suite level buy-in saying, this is good for your business, you're investing in your, in your buildings, in your operations, um, you're optimizing all of your factories, your, your warehouses, your office buildings. Um, that is good, not just for your carbon saving and saving money, it's good for the whole business. So it, it really is an investment decision. What we want companies as well um, to see is to, to get away from a simple return on investment type um, approach to energy efficiency investment. So you don't want to just think, oh, we're going to upgrade our um, heating. It's going to cost this much money. The payback is this amount of time because that can really limit the approach. So you can do lots of interesting things on the you know packaging up various different measures all in one to, to improve that ROI. But looking at the bigger 
business picture as well. So, you know, if you're optimizing your buildings, if you're investing in nice, healthy, sustainable buildings, that's not just good for your energy saving. It's good for your uh, productivity of your workers, for example. It it helps attract the best talent if you've got, you know, nice, sustainable offices. If you've got two identical companies and one's got a nice net zero carbon building um, with well standard or whatever it is inside, and one's got a, a fairly average office building, you know, most people would choose the the nicer, um, more attractive, more productive building to work in. So it's about that big business picture. And we know with lots of younger people now joining the workforce, they want to join organizations that um, align with them and with their, you know, uh, climate goals. They want to work for companies that have really ambitious goals for decarbonization, for sustainability. So they're it's really a, a future investment decision as well and not just this uh, kind of simple return on investment um, calculation that we need to get away from. Are we talking, when we're talking about energy efficiency within within businesses and, and corporations, are we talking about similar sort of efficiency gains that you will see in your normal household, better insulation, LED lighting, switching to heat pumps? Is this the sort of thing that you're encouraging these businesses to do as well? Is there anything else they can do on top of that that perhaps the normal household might not be able to yeah, um, I think- take advantage of? We really see um, businesses, they can really lead this agenda and set the agenda almost because they've got that that purchasing power. They can afford these harder to uh, fund measures that might be able to reach to the average householder at the moment, especially if we're talking about the UK. You know, the heat pump market is still in development, but hopefully in a few years we'll see that the cost um, drop uh, dramatically. But yeah, corporates can really do things that, Householders, the average householder can't, but they can start with easy wins, like you mentioned, LEDs, amazing savings from LEDs compared to the incumbent technologies. You can also do lots of clever stuff with digitalization within buildings as well. So looking at smart building technologies, um, even things like AI. So some companies are even looking at, you know, um, intelligent building systems, making sure that they're optimized, they're they're, um, reacting to the weather outside, so you're not wasting energy. We've seen a huge tran- transformation in the way that you know the econ- economy has been working worldwide as well. So with with the increase in flexible working or you know hybrid working, whatever we want to call it, but companies are still leasing out these huge offices when they might only be forty percent um, occupancy at any one time. So do we need to have all the lights on, all the air conditioning on, all the heating on, all the ventilation on when only parts of the building are occupied? So you can do some really cool stuff with building optimization and smart buildings and even things like um, smart maintenance. So you can embed these technologies within your within all, within all your facilities um, to really optimize the buildings. Like you mentioned at the start, we do work with a number of different sectors as well. So not just those built environment type companies or office-based companies. We have lots of heavy manufacturing, heavy industry type companies that are huge energy users, you know, some of our members have the carbon footprint of a small company, to be honest, so a country. So we we work with those heavy um, energy intensive industries because efficiencies is super important for them. So, you know, if one of our, one of our members, for example, is um, they're a cement manufacturer and they're going through every single stage of the, the manufacturing process for their cement and saying, you know, where can we get 1%, 2% savings here and there throughout the whole um, organization and just by for example changing the raw mix of their cement they've saved 10 percent of their carbon footprint so 
looking at, at every stage, breaking it down into, into these parts and being really strategic about it. And the first step of that is really measuring it. Um, so measuring your energy use, knowing where you're using energy throughout your business is, is the really key aspect of it. Um, so there, there are things that are similar to households, but they can often companies can take it really a step further as well and start exploring every single stage of their their business, every every office, every facility, and being really forensic about it. I would like to ask you a, a very basic question uh, that keeps coming up in discussion. So. Uh, to give you an example um, where this happened to me, this is um, probably about 10 years ago, and I was at a meeting with very senior energy and climate policy civil servants, and we were discussing energy efficiency, in particular energy efficiency in businesses. And the question they put to me was that you know, if there's such huge potential for cost-effective energy savings, so all the things you just mentioned, Toby, you know, improving processes, using smarter systems, better management, better better actually me measuring of energy flows uh, in an organization, why do companies not just do it? You know, if it's already cost-effective, surely they said they would do it because you know, they're, they're, they're there to make money. If there's an opportunity to make money, to save money, to get more efficient, uh, surely companies would just do that anyway. So why would we need any advice programs, groups like yours uh, making the case? Why would we need any government intervention in the first place? That was the question that was put to me. I mean, I, I have an answer, but I want to. I would like to hear your answer first uh, and then maybe add to it because it keeps coming up in discussions that people just say, well, energy efficiency makes business sense. Why should anyone intervene? This happens anyway. And if it doesn't happen, there's a good reason for it. And that's because it's not profitable. That's kind of the argument that I keep hearing. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that is the case, Jan, and it's what we hear quite a lot with our, you know, with our work. But like I said, I think it's that awareness raising in the first place. People simply don't realize what a big part it can play in their decarbonization journey. They just think, you know, like I said, oh, it's just saving a bit of energy here and there. We kind of do that already. We make sure we turn off the lights in the buildings. Um, therefore, we don't need to worry about it. But actually, like I was saying earlier, we, we the the days of cheap fossil fuels are over. We can no longer afford to waste all this energy because we know we're just um, really not being efficient in a lot of our buildings, a lot of our operation, uh, operations. Um, you know, the war the war in Ukraine is, is an awful situation, but it has really raised the profile of energy efficiency. And we've seen, you know, whole economies changing. Um, Germany, for example, going from 60% imported Russian gas to 4% in one year, you know. So it shows where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and it does sometimes take these big global shocks to the economy to, to really focus minds on things. And it's probably never been more in the in the news since the, the 1970s oil crisis, that's when the first lot of energy efficiency, a lot of the legislation came in. So, for example, the, you know, the um, energy efficiency in Scandinavia, was, we always assumed that was always really good, but actually um, it, it wasn't that good until the, the 70s and they realized how much oil they were using. So, that's when higher energy efficiency standards came in. So governments can really help push things along by bringing in standards, um, minimum energy performance standards for buildings, for example, also things like um, product efficiency standards. So it's one of the, the kind of secret energy savings. If you bring in um, stronger policies for electrical appliances, for example, on their efficiency standards, that can save lots of energy that um, 
it's not just good for emissions, it's good for consumers as well. It makes for cheaper running costs. So we've we've worked with a number of our companies who are product manufacturers to promote the, the IEA and the seed initiative for product efficiency. So if you double the um, efficiency of just four types of products use forty um, percent of the electricity in buildings. So lighting, air conditioning, refrigerators, um, DC motors, and things like factories. If you improve the efficiency of those, and governments bring in policies for those, that saves loads of energy without anyone even realizing. So those types of policies. So we need we need a bit of a carrot and a stick approach. It it should be business sense for companies to be doing this, but if we can bring in policies. And what we try and do with climate group campaigns is use that demand signal from business to say, you know, this is a good thing. We need more supporting policy for efficiency standards, for for building standards. Um, We just supported the um, to the EU Parliament with a number of other uh, climate NGO colleagues and businesses to enhance the the standards for the, the energy performance and buildings directive, for example. So we can use this demand signal voice from our corporate members to say to governments, we need more of these types of policies and legislation. Um, and yeah, a bit of a carrot approach, a bit of a stick approach, and also just getting the message out there. So that's what we try and do with Climate Group as well, is just get those messages out there, do, you know, present the la- latest best study, um, best practice studies, um, case studies, all that type of thing to really help raise awareness as well. Yeah, awareness is clearly a big barrier, and um, I, I think the work you do is 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 is, is helping address that, um, which is great. Uh, I mean, there's a whole literature, uh, academic literature, on just the barriers to energy efficiency. If you if you Google that, um, you will find hundreds, if not thousands, of academic papers on that. And I think other barriers uh, also include um, you know, that the principal agent problem, which means that you you might not actually feel you have any control over your energy. You have outsourced that to a, another firm. Often office buildings, the energy use is actually not under your direct control. If you're a consulting firm, for example, that's not your core business, Um, even though you might even consult on energy issues, but the actual management of the building is done by someone else. Uh, Or you might be a tenant, you might not even own any of the equipment. I think the the other one is um, kind of actually, who do you turn to? So even if you're aware that there are all these opportunities you know, where do you go to get help in in actually taking advantage of that? Uh, and of course, in the UK, we had the Carbon Trust for a very long time, which kind of does that. But in other countries, uh, there's not necessarily the same infrastructure on energy efficiency in in in, in businesses. What, what are you sort of seeing when you look at this kind of beyond um, you know the the, the UK um, sort of more globally? Is this something that is a trend that there's a kind of thriving energy advice uh, business that actually helps companies deliver on their decarbonization goals through energy efficiency? Yeah, I think it, it's really mixed picture um, wherever you go in the in the world. We obviously, we don't directly consult with our corporates, but we try and, you know, do some peer-to-peer learning with members so people can learn off each other. So we do, you know, big global events, but also we can do smaller workshops and say we want to focus on a particular issue. So that's what we try and do and use that industry insider knowledge to to kind of enhance learnings. But yeah, it is it is a really mixed picture. We actually work with the Carbon Trust on the on the EP100 reporting, and they're doing lots of great work. Um yeah, I think there's a number of bodies worldwide, but it can be a mixed picture for companies. And like you said, one of the biggest barriers we find is that landlord-tenant um, split incentive for for building improvements, especially. So what we can do is try and work with our 
industry members who are, you know, corporate landlords or who are, um, we do a lot of work with the facilities management industry as well and engaging with those um, partners and saying, how can we, how can we work together to break down some of these barriers? Cause yeah, landlord tenant split is, is really key. Um, so overall saying we need more energy efficiency is great, but sometimes we need to dig down into specific topics or issues to unlock some of those barriers. So that's what we try and do with our work as well. Um, I think as well, like you said, most companies don't own their own buildings. They tend to be to be leasing them. Um, but then there's some really uh, innovative work going on with, uh, for example, one of our land, um, one of our corporate members is a big landlord. They're really um, ambitious on their sustainability agenda and decarbonisation agenda. So they're saying to clients now, we we won't lease out our office buildings or our f- facilities to companies that do not share our ambitions for you know decarbonisation. So it's we're starting to see that more and more now. The more progressive companies are saying, you know, we need to be doing this to get ahead of the market because we know that that demand signal for companies to decarbonize is there. Therefore, we need to be ahead of the agenda if we're actually going to stay on top of this market. So, yeah, some really interesting things going on. Um, but the, the lack of knowledge is, yeah, can be can be one of the major barriers worldwide. Could you say that the landlords are selecting, you, you mentioned the landlords are not going to you know, rent out their office spaces to companies like that don't match the ambition. Is there then a case there could be more favorable rent uh, for companies that are, are going to be ambitious in, in reducing their carbon footprint as well? Yeah, I think so. We're, we're starting to see that. So things like green leases, um, green bonds for um, building renovations. It's one of the huge topics at the moment is, is the financing gap. So we, we know there's been lots of um, sort of discussions recently that demolishing buildings and then building new buildings is not the most carbon efficient thing to do. It's actually more carbon efficient to renovate existing buildings. And we know that sort of 80% of the buildings um, around today are going to be in existence in by the end of the century. Therefore, we need to renovate our current buildings up to net zero standards and probably half emissions by 2030, which is a, a huge task if you think, you know, we're, we're 2023 already. Um, it's not that far away. And one of the biggest barriers there is is that landlord-tenant split, but also the financing aspect. So there's a huge gap between you know what is available um, and what is actually required to get our buildings to net zero. So there needs to be some interesting and innovative new financing models from the finance institutions, from the banks, from the um, insurers to, to sort of unlock all this work. Um, I think the current renovation rate in Europe is about 1% per year, and we need it to be on 3 or 4% per year to, to actually hit net zero. So it's a huge step change. And I feel like I've been quoting that figure for years and years and years. So the, the renovation rate's not actually improving. So there's a, a certain key number of barriers that need to be addressed. Things like minimum energy performance standards can can help that because companies then know and governments know that they've got to hit these standards. Um, but there also needs to be some other incentives. And I know, Jan, the work that um, you do with RAP, you you say, you know, that, that for example, the heat pump rollout, there needs to be financing there, but you also need to bring in infrastructure in terms of um, upskilling, upskilling the workforce. You can't just say, here's some financing, go and do the work. You need to upskill the workforce. You need some supporting policies. You also need 
um, you know, public information campaigns and things like that. So there's a whole infrastructure, support infrastructure that needs to go around this, not just we need some more money because that is the truth, but we also need to um, upskill the workforce and improve awareness overall as well. Yeah, on the topic of minimum energy performance standards, I mean, this is something that is a subject of pretty controversial debate right now in Europe. Uh, as you would probably know, you know, we have an upcoming vote in the European Parliament on the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. This has made national headlines in countries like Italy, you know, being heavily politicized. And um, yeah, the outcome of all of that is, is, is still very, very uncertain. I mean, I, I certainly do hope that we will get better minimum energy performance standards. And it's, this is really about you know, the worst buildings um, you know, and making sure that they get, get renovated uh, you know, in time to meet those decarbonization goals and also give clarity to, to investors, uh, you know, to homeowners, to building owners, to businesses. Uh, and I think there are good examples actually also in the non-domestic sector in the Netherlands where these kinds of standards have been introduced a while back um, and, and they seem to be quite successful in shifting the market towards more energy efficiency because, uh, Toby, I think your point is well taken. The renovation rate remains stubbornly low, uh, but even within the small number of buildings that get renovated, uh, you know, the deep renovation rate is even lower. I think it's a tiny fraction of the number of buildings that get renovated. So there's there's so much work that we need to do. And I, I, I'm a firm believer in, in having a kind of clear regulatory framework that provides that clarity. And the closer we get to 2050, the, the more important that will be so we really get on track um so it's yeah it's really good to see that you also look at kind of the, the policy and regulatory environment as part of your work and finding uh, sort of allies within the business world asking for that kind of clarity yeah absolutely i think yeah that is it's always been a major barrier and it's something we need to um push on and it's something that climate group wants to do some more work on is you know, especially in the EU at the moment with everything that's going through the, the parliament, I think we can really push on that and say, you know, it's it's not just with energy efficiency, it's um, keep banging the same drum here, but it's not just, you know, it it's a win-win-win. So you get financial savings, you get carbon savings. It's great for jobs as well, you know, it's good for the economy. So if we're renovating all these buildings, then it's providing thousands of thousands of jobs for installers of insulation of heat pumps. Um, building renovations. So it's great for the economy. It's also really good for health. So it saves, um, you know, governments lots of money on health as well. So especially on the domestic sector, if you're improving all your housing stock, it's not just good for energy bills, which is great because in as we know, in the, in the UK, our, our homes are uh, cold and we're also paying massive bills as well. So it's, it's not a great situation. And it also has a massive impact on um, the health of well-being's of occupants, especially those with vulnerabilities, with health conditions, with young kids, for older people. So it's not just a, a simple return on investment calculation. Like like I said, it's it's good for the whole population. It's good for the economy. It's good for the health of the nation as well. So it, it really should be seen in that, that wider context and not just, um, this is going to cost a lot of money. We can't afford that. There's lots of other issues going on at the same time, which really need to be examined. Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. 
head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Kind of a question really for Jan here, but uh, Toby, you might be able to obviously give some uh, feedback. You mentioned uh, deep renovation and the the low rate of deep renovation is even lower than just the rate of renovation across Europe. Is deep renovation um, necessary or can, if all of the companies uh, or all of the uh, tangent uh, landlords sort of make um, small gains and the, uh, and achieve the low-hanging fruit. And um, what is that low-hanging fruit, firstly? But also, if they all make those gains, do we really need the deep renovation? And that's going to cause sort of lots of upheaval? There is a, I mean, there's a very um, lively debate about the necessity of deep renovations. And you know, so, some people would say that we need to have uh, all renovations need to be deep or as many as we can. And then on the other side of the debate, you would have people who would say, no, you kind of have to do it in stages. You know, you implement the low cost measures first and then you do it in staged renovation, essentially, which, yes, it might increase the cost overall. But yeah, it, that, that is more realistic as people are not always uh, leaving the building, for example, you know, then, uh, which, which may be necessary for deep renovation. Um, and my, my view is that you know, we need to have as many deep renovations as possible but it's probably unrealistic to assume that we can renovate all buildings deeply from a fabric efficiency perspective. So we need to also look at the supply side of heat. And I mean, luckily, we now have technologies like heat pumps, like uh, low carbon district heating that can really help decarbonize heat at the same time. Uh, the question is, where's, you know, where's that sweet spot? Um, so how much fabric efficiency do you have to deliver and how much heat supply decarbonization do you need to do to get to the optimal mix? And then whatever that means, depending on on what perspective you're taking yeah i think we need a bit of both and it will depend on the building to what extent you can go for deep renovation in terms of insulation uh, and to what extent uh, you have to decarbonize uh, the heat supply and it's there's not going to be the same answer for every single building every single business it will really depend uh, on the on situation which is not just costs right this is also practicality yeah for sure i think i think that's right jan and also we know that um it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, solution for every single building, for every single household, whatever it is. Yeah, so I think there's some really interesting things going on on the domestic side. So people like Energy Sprung who do a, a whole row of houses at the same time, I think those are really interesting, doing kind of cladding and PVs, um, heat pumps at the same time. So having that kind of one-stop shop almost, I think, with with all of this work, it has to be as as simple as possible for for the end user, for the for the landlord, for the tenant, whoever it is. So there can be a million different things to do, but trying to make it as easy as possible um, is really key. Because I know from my experience working on, I used to work on domestic energy quite a lot, and even if you were handing out free insulation like we did sort of ten or fifteen years ago in the UK. If people had to fill in a, a bunch of forms and jump through hoops to actually get it, they wouldn't bother. So you have to make it as, as simple as possible. So I think that's an important thing as well as the funding aspect. Um, with the deep renovations, yeah, like Jan said, it, it can be complicated. I think one of the major things will be the the decarbonization of heat. And you know, Jan and Rapp are doing a lot of work on that. And that is one of the big things um, we'll discuss a bit later on, but that is huge. It can be sort of 70% of the building's uh, footprint is from the heat. So that's a big thing. 
yeah, there's the low hanging fruit, like you mentioned, will be, I would always go for, you know, the fabric of the building, the insulation, do as much as you can. It's often the, the least glamorous things uh, that are the most effective. Uh, insulation, it, it's not particularly exciting, but it does really work. <laughs> um, and also LED lighting as well. Um, it can be sort of 50, 60, 70% savings compared to um, the incumbent technologies. And you can do lots of cool stuff with LEDs as well and link them into your smart systems and all that stuff. So LEDs always, um, and yeah, smart systems, digitalization and the fabric of the building are really key. And that decarbonization of heat and efficient cooling as well. One thing that we we often hear from skeptics uh, of energy efficiency, and I'm not amongst those. I'm I'm a I'm a, an evangelist when it comes to energy efficiency. Just to be clear, but what skeptics often say is, um, you know, yes, there may be these savings, but they don't persist. And you know, Jevons paradox, you know, famous economist in the um, in 1800 something, um, you know, he 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 wrote Jevons paradox, which basically means if you make energy um, services more efficient, people consume more of them, even to the point that um, you, it backfires and you, you increase overall energy use, you know, the rebound effect. What's your view um, of that, Toby? And what do you say to people who will tell you, well, it's all very well that you do these uh, initiatives with energy efficiency in businesses, but it's not going to save any energy uh, in the long term. It's not going to reduce carbon. All you're doing is saving these organizations some money, which they then spend on other energy services. So it's not actually going to do anything for the climate. What, what's your response? Yeah, I think just from, we know the work we do with our businesses that it does have real world effects. They are saving lots and lots and lots of energy and therefore lots of money. Um, so it's great for business and they can reinvest it into other um, energy efficiency measures. So the, the quicker payback things can offset the the, the longer term um, investments as well. So, yeah, I think it does have real world consequences. We have seen emissions um, falling from a lot of our businesses. So it it does work, you know, and we, we make sure with our reporting process that we, we capture these results. So um, it's about 1.2 billion dollars saved since the start of EP100 through all of our, through all of our businesses. So huge amounts of money saved and, and huge amounts of carbon as well. So we know that our our corporates who are members of EP100, they're, they're really leading on this and they're showing the way and it's improving their business resilience as well. So it's, it's great for their decarbonization journey, but it's good for business resilience. So it's kind of win-win. I think on the, on the householder side, there can be yeah that um, that rebound effect as well because we know from like I've said with the UK our housing stock is is very inefficient we have lots of old Victorian Georgian Edwardian single brick buildings that can be quite cold you know we're, we we talk to uh, colleagues and they're all sat in their homes wearing woolly hats and scarves and things so we we do want people to be warmer in their home so you can get that rebound effect um, but. Overall, if you improve the efficiency of the building, improve the fabric of the building, it will save um, carbon in the long run, which is great. But also it will enable people to be warmer at home. Um, and that has many additional benefits as well. So, yeah, it's like I said, it's a win-win for householders. It's a win-win for businesses as well. So we should be prioritizing this. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that um, many corporations have a lot higher uh, buying power than many households. Can 
can these companies help the research and development of energy efficiency technologies and kind of accelerate it so that households in the future can benefit from those developments a bit further down the line? Yeah, for sure. I think, like I said earlier, we can see it with heat pumps. So lots of companies are starting to to look at their, their space heating and investing in heat pumps and other um, more kind of modern technologies for heating. It's it's still it's still especially in the UK, uncompetitive for home homeowners to install heat pumps. But there's, yeah, I think the private sector can really help with the R&D of these newer technologies um, and saying, you know, and kind of mainstreaming them as well. You know, there's still lots of misinformation around heat pumps, especially. So we, we kind of saw it with similar, I kind of compare it to the, the EV um, rollout, you know, there was lots of misinformation about EVs. You're going to get stuck in the middle of nowhere and they don't work and they're more carbon intensive overall and all this uh, kind of stuff that has proved not to be true. Um, so I think there's a similar story there at the at the heat pump stage of things at the moment. But yeah, big corporates can really help the push with this. I think with the economies of scale as well, you'll start seeing the prices drop so, you know, Octopus Energy is doing some interesting work on heat pumps at the moment. They think they can get it down to, and British Gas, of sort of parity with a, a standard gas boiler within a few years. So I think we will see the mainstream, see the mainstreaming of heat pumps in a few years' time. Um, there was even, you know, misinformation out there that they don't work in cold climates, but we've seen them massive uptake in, in Scandinavia, in Finland and Denmark and elsewhere. So we know they do work in cold climates. So... Yeah, I think they can help mainstream things. They can help with the the costs, but also just getting those best study case studies, um, best practice case studies, and examples out there, and just you know saying this is a good technology. It's reliable. It reduces carbon. It keeps us warm. Um, so yeah, kind of helping with the with the profiling of those as well. And I think. Um, we also use that demand signal from our corporates to then try and influence policy. So we can say, you know, we need more support from governments on X, Y, and Z um, building standards or on technologies. So it can really help raise the profile with governments and with other sort of policy makers that this is a good a good investment. If I could come in here and raise um, another topic, which is. Uh, I think it's quite it's quite complicated, um, and I've only recently started to do some work on it, which is about the context of energy efficiency in the net zero world. Because a lot of the work we've done in the past was really to make you know, fossil fuel technologies a little bit more efficient. So you were switching um, you know, from um, a, a high, highly energy intensive process to one that was still very energy intensive, but a little bit less energy intensive using better technologies, or you, managed, you we did some waste heat recovery, or you switched from, you know, at a building level, from a non-condensing gas boiler to a condensing gas boiler, and you get some savings. Um, in the future, of course, you know, the, the aim is, is not just a reduction of 20, 30% in carbon emissions, for which energy efficiency is very well suited, but we're looking at um, you know, close to 100% or even 100% uh, carbon reduction and full decarbonization in many sectors of the economy. W what's your sense, Toby, how energy efficiency needs to maybe be repositioned in that context to be uh, net zero ready and, and, and not just kind of do what I just described, making fossil fuel technologies a little bit more efficient so they save carbon and energy? Yeah, for sure. 
I think with certain measures, like with heat pumps, I know I keep um, banging on about heat pumps, but they are an amazing technology. So like you said, the, the most efficient gas boiler is 90% efficient. So you're getting 90% of the, the heat out of one unit of gas, um, which is fine. But with heat pumps, you're, you're getting, you know, from one uh, unit of energy you put in, you're getting around three units of heat out. So a complete step change in... Um, in the in the efficiency so it's not only just a fuel switching exercise it's it's actually a massive improvement in efficiency with um with electric vehicles as well similar thing you know we all know that um even the most efficient technologies for internal combustion engines you're wasting 80 percent of the the energy within the petrol as um as heat so you know, despite all the claims from the car makers that the, this amazing new uh, efficient engine, you're still wasting the vast majority. And you think of all those carbon emissions that are involved in extracting all the oil and, and refining it in the first place. So it can be efficiencies, not just about incremental improvement. It's about huge step changes. So we get these amazing technologies that come in that are really game changers. Um, so, yeah, that's how I try and think of efficiency and also like I said, as well, we can no longer re rely on cheap fossil fuels. Those days are kind of over. Um, we know this change is coming. So companies need to be ahead in this. Um, and so do governments. That That is the direction of travel. You can no longer ignore it. So they really need to be at the cutting edge of, of this space to get ahead of the market if they're a corporate or to, you know, ready their economy if they're a if they're a government. So we can no longer just keep on thinking, oh yeah, a couple of percentage improvements every few years is fine. We need to look at these um, amazing technologies and really, really go for them because, you know, it'd be, it'd be crazy not to. David, before you come in, just a quick follow-up um, and a bit of an advertisement for an article on the Foresight website um, on this topic of electrification and energy savings, which I think is still completely overlooked and not really widely understood, uh, which is um, based on an article that Professor Nick Ayer at Oxford wrote about kind of the potential for electrification to reduce energy consumption at global level. And there's a great article on the Foresight website. If you haven't seen it yet, I do recommend it because it's it makes some I think pretty important observations, and uh, it's it's also particularly well presented, of course, because it's on a foresight website. Thanks, Jan. Yeah, your checks in the post. Um, no, uh, appreciate that. Yeah, it's really some in interesting work that's been done. Uh, we did a whole uh, special issue uh, on energy efficiency uh, a year ago, so um, yeah, I would highly recommend people working that out. That kind of brings me on to my next question, um, there, Toby. Um, why now? You said you, the, the title of the report is the uh, efficiency imperative. Um, sort of why now are you encouraging companies to really take energy efficiency seriously and why not a couple of years ago? Yeah, well, EP100 has been um, going since 2016. So we've we've kind of been banging the drum for energy efficiency since then. Um, and I've worked in energy efficiency for years and years. And we we think now is a really good time to kind of use that momentum from it's really raised the profile of um, energy efficiency because we know we're wasting all this energy. So we're trying to uh, push on an open door, as it were, and just keep on getting the message out there and making it in an interesting way. So we'd love to um, advertise our report to your to your listeners and have a look at that. And there's some really cool case studies in it as well as some of the businesses. Um, and just saying to businesses and to governments, you need to be on this agenda. It's We can no longer ignore it. 
like there was a big step change in the in the 70s with the oil crisis. Um, there's been another step change in the economy, or there's been a, a, a couple of shocks to the economy in the last few years, you know, with, with COVID and hybrid working and, and now the, the kind of energy crisis in Europe. It's really raised the profile of it. So we want to just get the message out there. We can't just carry on wasting energy. We're wasting so much energy still, and, you know, it's, it's really criminal. So we need to optimize all of our energy use and look at these amazing new technologies as well that are, you know, a much more efficient way of heating our buildings or cooling our buildings or, or getting us from A to B in, in transport as well. So now has never been a better time. So we, we did an event last week. We called it If Not Now, When? You know, if we can't raise the profile of it now, when can we do it? Um, so we would say to all the businesses out there, anyone listening in, um, do get in contact with us. We would love to talk to you and and become part of EP100. And we'll keep on pushing uh, the beating the drum for energy efficiency because, it, you know, it's really critical to the, the clean energy transition. And if we're to hit net zero by 2050. And, and do companies need to sort of um, re-examine their entire business strategy in order to incorporate energy efficiency? Or is it something they can kind of evolve into their existing operations? I think the first, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but the first um, step in understanding it is is kind of measuring it. Um, so, you know, you can't start to tackle this if you don't know where you're using energy within your business. So a lot of our corporates, you know, are, are huge multinationals and they've doing things like installing energy management systems so they can tell every facility, every building, where where are we using energy? What time are we using energy? Is there, you know, a certain peak or is there a random anomaly that we're kind of wasting a bunch of energy in one office compared to another one? So I think that first step is to um, to measure it and then you can go from there. Like I said, lots of companies are setting net zero goals or, or climate neutral goals, but actually are not... Um, starting with efficiency and that's the key element that we want to push on it's not good just good for you know energy savings and and money savings it's got all these other benefits as well um and we see corporate campaigns like ep100 of really raising the profile internally as well so getting that senior level buy-in is really key so that's what we're trying to uh push with ep100 um so yeah as we say, every net zero conversation should start with efficiency. So that's what we're trying to push here with EP100. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I just one more question on sort of the um, buying power of corporates. Could you see, is there scope or is there potential for um, a number of business owners or building owners, particularly, I'm thinking maybe like central London, I'm, look, I'm thinking of here, and many, many major urban areas, a couple of um, building owners that have you know our, our neighbors are, are close together and they could maybe come together in order to create the economies of scale to order so many lighting order so many heat pumps that they need or order so much insulation to kind of do the work all together is there scope is there a, is there a framework is there a, a, a network for people to do that yeah potentially so what, what we try and do is engage with the the industry on certain levels or certain topics so um for example there's a thing in london called the the uh, landlord um the owner occupier forum. So it gets together these big occupiers of buildings and also the landlords as well. So they're trying to work together to to break down some of these barriers. Um, Cause it's, like I said, it is one of the biggest um, barriers to sort of building renovations, but yeah, we're always looking to sort of collaborate um, with businesses, but also in um, sort of promote best practice learnings and peer-to-peer learning, that type of thing. And there are forums out there that can do that. But 
yeah, we're we're pushing on the um, sort of renovation of um, EU buildings specifically, and we're going to do some more work in that area. So bringing together these um, stakeholders to share best practice, break down some of the barriers, also involve some of the policymakers and saying, you know, we need more support in doing this. So it's it's kind of identifying what the key blockages are and then bringing those um, stakeholder groups together to try and sort of unlock some of them. And just very quickly, maybe, what about what about new buildings? You said obviously 80% of buildings are uh, probably going to be in use by 2050, existing buildings today uh, will still be in use by 2050. But that means there's 20% of buildings will be brand new by then. And is there being work being done on uh, standards for new buildings, perhaps particularly, uh, and uh, best practice of building design? Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, the building efficiency has come on, you know, remarkably in um, the last, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. And everyone will notice if they've lived in a new build compared to an old house, they'll feel the difference. And often you're not having to put the heating on at all, which is great. Um, sometimes it's going too far the other way and they're overheating massively in, in the summer and then having to install air conditioning. So the, there needs to be a sort of happy medium. But overall, you know, new builds are a lot more efficient in terms of their operation. However, with new builds, you get this huge embodied carbon element as well. So all the all the concrete, all the steel, all the glass that is actually used to to build the building in the first place, that has a, a massive carbon footprint. So you've got a large footprint before you've even started using the building. Um, so we would always recommend whoever is looking at um, investing in new builds, do, do we need to demolish and build a new building can we renovate our existing building and there's you know there was a high profile case in uh, Marks and Spencer in Oxford Street or Regent Street in London and uh, they were the the landlords wanting to knock that down and sort of build a new building and um, actually there was a big debate about it would actually be a lot um, more carbon efficient to renovate the existing building even though it's going to be expensive um, we do work with uh, we work in partnership with World Green Building Council on the net zero com building commitment as part of EP100 as well. And that now includes an embodied carbon element to the commitment. So we're looking to work with the industry to to reduce the, the embodied carbon. Um, and also the two newest corporate campaigns um, for Climate Group as well are Steel Zero and Concrete Zero. So we're, we're actively looking to engage with the supply chains there and how we can reduce the the carbon footprint of carbon and steel, because I think it's about 8% and 7% of global emissions. So these raw materials are responsible for huge amounts of carbon being released. So we're trying to um, work with the, the supply chain with the end users there to see how we can decarbonize those raw materials, because it's it, it was a big kind of elephant in the room with uh, with new builds that, you know, we're making these nice new shiny buildings that are really efficient, um, but you've got a, a massive amount of carbon involved in, in building them in the first place. Um, we've also got, well, we're hoping to get, uh, we've got a number of construction companies within the membership as well. So we're looking, uh, a lot of them are doing really interesting stuff on how they can actually reduce the amount of energy it, it takes to build a new building in the first place. So there's some interesting stuff going on with the construction industry as well. So, um, yeah, there's a few different parts all coming together on that. But, yeah, um, I think it's it's very hard to say uh, an exact figure, but I've seen figures of sort of 50% less carbon in renovating an existing building than demolishing and then building a new build. Interesting. And that's, it's interesting that that's now part of the debate. It's the carbon in footprint of or the carbon impact of demolishing and building rather than merely just cost. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what we've got, so with the Climate Group, we're, we're headquartered in the UK, but we've also got regional offices as well. We've got a China office and our, our, um, our chief exec in the China office always tells me the amazing stat that 50% of all new buildings in the world are built in China every year. So it's, you know, there's, there's areas all over the world that are growing massively. So that carbon impact from, from that development is, is going to keep on going up. So some of that needs to be tackled by looking at the actual raw materials that are going into these, these new buildings. Absolutely. Um, Toby, thank you so much for your time today. Um, just one final question. You say we've got the new report out and now listeners will be able to uh, find a link to that in the show notes. Is there anything in the report that perhaps, uh, or perhaps is there something that's not in the report that you'd hoped that was in there? Is there something that you wish you could have discussed more or spent a bit more time on within the report? Yeah, I think there's been a few interesting things going on. So, you know, COVID obviously massively impacted a lot of the companies in, in 2020, 2021. So actually, we we thought, you know, companies would have been fully recovered from that by now, but it's still having a, a knock-on effect, actually, in terms of their their operations. So that, that was kind of an interesting finding. Um, I think we're going to see a massive uptick this year in in the profile of energy efficiency. So we're hoping to, you know, grow the membership from there. Um, there's been some really interesting stuff on, yeah, like like we've mentioned, the electrification of of space heating um, and efficient cooling as well. So we're going to do some more work on those areas. And I think that will come out in the next few years in the report. Um, and yeah, we want to see the the continued growth of EP100 really. And yeah, it's it's like like I keep saying, if not now, when? So we really want to keep on banging the drum for this and, and raising the profile. Absolutely. Uh, Toby, before we go then, uh, one thing we ask all of our guests is if they could look into their crystal ball, uh, what do they see the energy landscape, and I guess it may be in your uh, case, the the built environment landscape looking like in sort of 10 to 20 years time? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think, I guess one of the big things that's happening at the moment is the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. Um, That has sparked almost a mini trade war. So the EU are looking at doing a similar type of thing, basically. So um, I think it's really interesting that the in the US it's it's almost the climate's not even mentioned. It's just been a part of the economy. So that's quite a nice framing from them because we know in the US that if you mention anything climate related, it can be quite controversial. So they've kind of badged it as yeah, reducing inflation but also creating jobs. Um, and if the EU responds with a similarly ambitious package then hopefully that can kickstart a lot of this work um, that we keep saying is is lacking in terms of building renovations. So hopefully we see that and people will see those additional benefits and so not just the decarbonisation of our buildings, but um, making lots of jobs um, in installers, uh, reducing emissions, um, improving health of the occupants and things like that. So I think there will be, yeah, a continued growth of sort of, these mini trade wars, to be honest, um, that could actually help push a lot of the the climate stuff along, which is is kind of interesting that we wouldn't have envisaged um, even you know a year or so ago. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Toby, thank you so much for your time today. Really interesting discussion, and uh, yeah, do encourage our listeners to check out the report and uh, maybe take that back to their um, bosses and and uh, 
buyers and things and, and intru- introduce those topics into into their uh, discussions for their own buildings and their own companies. Um, before we go, uh, I'd just quickly like to ask uh, what caught my eye uh, in the past week or so. Uh, Jan, let's start with you. Uh, what caught your eye in particular? Uh, it was a report uh, by Solar Power Europe, actually, on uh, combining heat pumps and solar PV in the same building. And they were showing the energy bill savings you could uh, obtain, the amount of your electricity demand that you could cover with PV. It's a really interesting report uh, with some sort of modeling of different countries, Germany, Italy, Spain, uh, well presented, and a fairly easy read, not, not too technical. And I do recommend it to our listeners. Yeah, really interesting. I guess, yeah, absolutely links to our discussion today so far. Could be something uh, some building owners uh, consider. Toby, how about you? What caught your eye? Yeah, so one of our members, um, Danfoss, a Danish company, just released a white paper on waste heat, um, which was really interesting. So they've basically worked out there's enough waste heat produced in Europe um, through things like power generation and data centers to heat all the homes, you know, it's it's more than enough to fulfill our heat demand. So it just goes to show um, how much energy we're wasting. So if we can capture some of that waste heat, that's that's really interesting. So that was something that uh, caught my eye. Yeah, really interesting. Um, waste heat's a, a fascinating topic. Uh, for me, um, I saw it's a the article itself is from late last year, but I kind of only came across it in the last week or so, and it's uh, an article about. Um, disguising solar panels as ancient Roman tiles uh, and they're installing them in Pompeii so obviously uh, a heritage site so they don't want sort of the modern uh, technology in there but they've managed to produce solar panels that look exactly like terracotta tiles Um, so I think that's really interesting Um, I obviously don't know necessarily the efficiency of them but i guess every little bit helps and and sort of these sympathetic renovations i guess could be something that um some building owners especially in very old cities like london and 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 berlin might be more interested in um i don't know if that's something you've come across toby sort of these sympathetic um renovations yeah for sure i think there's even some uh some pv panels that look like standard roof tiles um, so yeah, there's lots of cool stuff you can do, which kind of would hopefully get around some of our uh, slightly archaic conservation laws in in UK areas, in London especially, where you can't do much to old houses, which doesn't help with the the whole energy uh, improvement of them. No, of course. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Toby and Jan. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Toby? Yep, so I'm Toby double underscore Morgan at, yeah, that's me. And Jan? I'm on Jan Rosenau. Uh, if you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at whatmatterspod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.